Welcome to RH at Home. I'm Chad Clement, pastor here at Redemption Hill Church. And again, we are so grateful that you're joining us. As we continue going through the book of Nehemiah, really we've, we've tried to look at Ezra and Nehemiah together in unison. It's, it's really a continued story. About two weeks ago, we finished going through the book of Ezra. And right we say they're continued. It deals with this idea of exiles leaving Babylon, leaving the Persian Empire, and returning back to Jerusalem, returning back to Israel, um, and, and beginning to restore it, rebuild it, and revive it. When we looked at Ezra, we saw the first wave come with Zerubbabel and Yeshua that that came and rebuilt the temple. And then we saw Ezra come with a, another remnant, a much smaller remnant, about 1,500 people. And he would come in and ultimately begin to rebuild, restore, and revive the people's hearts towards the law of God, of getting their, their lives back in order, right with the Lord. And so we saw that. And, and last week we were introduced to the third kind of character, third leader of this rebuilding, restoring, reviving process, and that's Nehemiah. And I love how Nehemiah chapter 1, we see his heart broken for Jerusalem. He gets a report back from his brother about how the walls are still destroyed, that the, the people, the, the place is still kind of in ruins. There's a lot of bad things going on. And, and Nehemiah's heart was broken. One of the things that kind of grabbed me so much in that chapter was this idea understanding that, that Nehemiah is far from there. Nehemiah has a good, comfortable life. As, as we saw at the end, his position was a cupbearer. So he had a kind of a life of luxury. He had an inside track, like he had the ear of the king. He was doing very well financially, the upper class, living in the in, in the palace. So he had a good life. Everything around him in his world, things were good. Yet he's broken broken for his ancestors' homeland, broken knowing that God's area was just still in ruins. And so we see that brokenness brought him to his knees. He, he prayed. He was seeking the Lord, asking the Lord to do something. And that prayer would go on for four months. And we pick up in chapter 2, in the continuation of the prayer from chapter 1, verse chapter 2, verse 1 of Nehemiah says this, In the month of Nisan, the, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Verse 2 says, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness in your heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the king, when this city, the, the place of my father's gra graves, um, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So we see that at the very beginning when it begins to describe a little kind of time stamp, the month and the the, the year of Artaxerxes' reign, 
that's where we will connect back to chapter one, that Nehemiah had been praying for about four months, a little over four months. Right? And being, been praying, and I, and I remember at the end of uh, chapter one and verse 10, as he's praying, he said, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Right? This man was King Artaxerxes. And so here we pick up in chapter two, Artaxerxes, or, or Nehemiah's, at work, right? It says there that the, the wine was before the king. And so Nehemiah's doing his job, you know, getting the meal prepared, you know, making sure everything's right, testing, making sure everything's good. And and for us, this doesn't maybe doesn't strike us as as um, necessarily important, but we see here that the king noticed something about Nehemiah. Right now it's it's led up before the king makes a statement. It says now I had been not been sad in his presence. So Nehemiah had never been sad in the presence of the king. So we might think, well, what so what's the big deal? So we all are entitled to a bad day, right? And a lot of us, right, we wear our emotions on our sleeves. So it's not maybe uncommon for you to show up at work or, or school or wherever, like having a bad day. And a lot of times that bad day leads to a sad disposition. Right? We, we can see it on people's faces. So that, that doesn't seem abnormal or, or, or striking by any ways. But in this context, it would have been, it would have been striking. Because here's the deal. Like, because in, in there we see um, after the king makes the observation that 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 Nehemiah is sad, he's upset because he says, Listen, I know you're not sick. So all I can surmise from from looking at you is like sadness. There's a sadness in your soul. And when the king says that to Nehemiah, it says he was greatly afraid. Why would he be greatly afraid that the king noticed that he was sad? Well, well here's, here's the deal. Like, you know, most of the kings during these times, which probably isn't maybe that abnormal to, to, to people that lead countries today, like, if, if you were sad in their presence, it would have been an indication or could have been taken as an indication to the king that, that in some way, shape, or form, he was failing or the kingdom was failing. And so this would have been very, um, the king at this point, what it could have had the authority. And, and again, like a lot of these guys were egomaniacs, that a sad day in his presence was questioning the king's power questioning the kingdom that he was over, questioning whether he was a good king or a not good king. Right? That king would have wanted everyone to be happy because he was the king. And here he sees the sadness, and he could have taken this very personal, and it wouldn't have been out of line for, for him to just either exile Nehemiah or really even to set an example for the rest of those in the kingdom or those in the king's presence to have him executed. And the king asks, what's the problem? Why are you sad? And notice the response of Nehemiah. And he begins by, by saying, like, forever live the king. Like, man, like he, he, he exhorts the king. He, he, he tries to make sure he deflects, like the problem isn't you as the king. This isn't like a lack of your leadership. This isn't, uh, I'm not sad because you're failing as a king or doing a bad job. Like, this has nothing to do with you as a king. Like, you're a great king. Like, long live the king, right? 
type stuff. And he goes on and he, and he appeals, I think, to the king's humanity. And then he says, and he avoids kind of the political jargon. And he says, why shouldn't my heart be sad? Because, like, my father's homeland, like, where my fathers and their fathers are buried, it lies in ruins. It's full of smoke, flames. It's just destroyed. And it breaks my heart to, to know that that's my ancestry. That's what's that? Like, I just am overwhelmed, I'm over, kind of come with. The, the, the way in which that land is. And, and let's, let's see how the king responds. Verse 4 says, and The king said to me, What are you requesting? I, again, like that, I think that plea to the humanity of the king, like if Nehemiah would have taken a political approach, like there's no doubt, I don't think the king would have just again, exiled him or struck him because it would have been a, an attack on him as, a, as the leader, as the king. But rather, Nehemiah approaches this tugging at the heartstrings. And so the king responds, so what are you, what, what are you asking? What, what, what do you want? What, what are you looking for, Nehemiah? What, 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 will, what will make you happy once again? And I love this. It says, at the very end of verse 4, he goes, So I prayed to the God of heaven. So I prayed to the God of heaven. In that moment, before the king, but Nehemiah's been praying for four months. Four months, and we remember when we talked about that prayer last week, this, that God would kind of give him the right words and idea and how to, how, how to, to, to convey this to the king. So he'd been praying for four months, and now here becomes his golden opportunity. The thing that he'd been praying for, that God is providing. And before just jumping in, before just uh, pursuing, before just asking, requesting, whatever, the first thing he does is pray. Now, here's, here's what I think happens here. Is he doesn't stop, bow his head, close his eyes, in fact, there probably almost wouldn't have been much of a pause from the request of the king until when Nehemiah began to give him a response. Right? Because that pause, that delay, that closing of the eyes and all that stuff could have been interpreted by, by the king as some form of treason, as some form of, of him trying to manipulate a plan or, or do something to harm the king. I, I think this is... Maybe what we would consider that quick emergency prayer. Now, here's what we're going to see kind of develop. The king ultimately is going to grant Nehemiah his request. I don't know that it was so much the emergency prayer. A lot of us, I'm like, I'm going to be honest, a lot of us, like me, like, our prayer life, if we're not careful, can be just the emergency prayers. Like we get ourselves in that jam and that problem, and then we just need 
We need that quick outlet. So, so we just throw the emergency prayer up. And then we get mad and frustrated when there's, there's no response or there's no answer or the answer isn't what we wanted. Understand this. Like, yes, this is a, an emergency prayer. But it was backed by four months of prayer that led to this point. Four months, remember, of the weeping and the waiting and the praying. That four months, would, when, when some might consider that was a wasted time, but ultimately what we see laid out here is it wasn't a waste of Nehemiah's time. It was an investment of Nehemiah's time. So as these things began to open up, Nehemiah was prepared. He was ready. And so Nehemiah ushers a quick emergency prayer. And then he goes on, verse 5 says, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's grave, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, and the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I gave him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Aspha, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber and to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. And so he he just he begins with a, a quick prayer, and, and I, there's two I think there's two things in this that stand out in his response to the king. The first part we see there, really in verses uh, like like five um, and six. is Nehemiah asks that the king would send him, send Nehemiah to go. Now, he, he had to, vocationally, first, he had to get permission for the king to leave. Like he couldn't just you know, turn in a two-week notice. He couldn't just, hey, I, I, just, I need a vacation. Like that didn't, that, his position didn't lend itself to that. Like There were a lot of perks that came with his job, the wealth, the luxury, the safety, like a lot, of, a lot of those things came with that, right? But he was also a, still, he still remained a servant of the king. So while he had a good relationship with the king, remember, he had a very important position. Like he was the one ultimately who would, who would test the king's food and drink to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So last week we said, you know, he was kind of like the chief of staff for, for the king. If you wanted access to the king's chamber, if you wanted access to the king, you had to come through the cupbearer. In some regards, he could also be viewed as, as, a, as a like secret servant service type agent, like protecting the king. Because, because of that position he had to have the trust of the king the tr the king had to trust him completely 
In essence, he's, he's the king's placing his own life in the hands of the cupbearer. Because of that trust, like that would build a, maybe a unique relationship. And so he couldn't just pack up and leave. He had to, he had to seek the king's, the king's um, approval to leave. But here's, I think, another point for us to be reminded of in this circumstance. As we read through this, as we ask the Lord to, to, to take his word and apply it to our lives today, I think when we look at the situation in chapter 1, we see that, that Nehemiah is, was, is kind of presented with a problem but it doesn't have direct impact on his life. He very easily could have just, man, said a quick prayer and moved on with his day. He very easily could have just heard it, kind of let it go through one ear and out the other. But man, the Lord broke him. He was weeping for it. But Nehemiah wanted to be part of the solution. He wanted to help fix the problem. And to me, like, how encouraging is that for us today? Maybe even convicting. How often are we on our knees praying for, for, for help, praying that God would change things? I, I think, like, and I look in the world we live in today, and I, I consider, like, the, the, the society that we live in and just the, all the garbage around us, all the anxiety that's filling us, again, from the pandemic to the protests to the politics, there's so much going on. And in many ways, like I really believe that, that we are, are similar to, to Jerusalem during this time. Like the walls man, have crumbled. They need to be rebuilt. The people need to be revived. How many of us, as we're praying for God to accomplish those things, is asking God, to use us, to send us, to send us in the midst of those problems to help rebuild and restore. See, a lot of us, a lot of us struggle to get to that point. Because if Nehemiah is granted this, if, if Nehemiah is allowed to leave this, remember, understand, Nehemiah is leaving the palace. He's leaving the wealth. He's leaving the, the, uh, much of the protection. He's leaving his known. And he's going man, to a place over here that's in shambles. Walls are torn down. Cities still, for the most part, in ruins. He's never been there. He's only heard reports. The reports that he heard are bad. The task will be hard. He's going to go to a group of people, try to inspire a group of people that he's never met, never seen, doesn't know. It's going to be a two, three-month journey just to get to where, from where he's at to where he wants to go. Like It's going to be a hard, laborsome, and in some ways, we might view it and think of it as an impossible task. Yet he's asking to be used. He's asking for himself to go. In some ways, it reminds me of the Great Commission. 
Like we do a good job probably, I hopefully, of praying that that the Lord might save a family member, loved one. We pray for missionaries. We pray that God might spark revival. But let me ask you a quick question. Are you, am I, going? Are we going and telling people? Are we sharing our faith? Are we, are we sharing with those around us the hope that can only be found in Jesus? Do we honestly want to be part of the process, of the building process? Do, do we want to roll our sleeves up and start digging things out and building once again? And he goes from that like, send me. And then, then we can almost say it follows up with this idea, would you be willing to give me to the king? Like, so send me first, but then, but as I'm, as, with your permission, if you grant it as I go, can, can you just also give me a couple things? The first is a, you know, a letter to, to those around that as I'm traveling back that will offer some kind of protection, that, that, that I'm underneath your leadership, King, that you're granting me permission to leave here, to leave Susa, to head to Jerusalem with the purpose of rebuilding the walls. Like, you're the great king. You're, these other places are still subject over you. So can you grant me a, a, a letter, a note that would kind of offer some protection for us? And then would you also send us a letter that we can kind of give to, to the one who oversees the forest with the intent that, that he'll provide us lumber from the king's forest to be used to rebuild the wall, to be used to kind of restore some of the ruins, that will be used to, to build the, the home in which I, I'll, I'll occupy while I'm there. So in essence, he's asking for like some safety. He's also asking for the king to help finance this. Now, I think, and as he's doing this, it, it makes mention that he's asking this to the king. And, you know, it, it, it just makes a little note in there. Like Some might say, like, I don't even, it seems weird it's even mentioned there. It says that the queen, queen was sitting beside him. Now, we're not going to dive into this part. Um, for, for those of you who want to look at another great resource, John Corson um, has a great study on the book of Nehemiah as well. And he looks at it from a slightly different view, like focus than kind of where we're tracking. Not that one's greater or righter than the other, but he, he makes a great um, focal point of the, the focus being on the Holy Spirit. And man, and in this, like he makes a lot of comparisons to different places, different people. And the king, you know, we have an earthly king and an earthly queen, and he compares it to a heavenly king and who's the queen? The church, right? Kind of a cool study. But you know what I saw? I think we can see in here too is, is God has this amazing way of providing the perfect opportunities or the right opportunities for us. And I think in this circumstance, having the queen there kind of offers maybe a chance for someone who might be more tender-hearted, more compassionate there, who has an intimate relationship with the king, 
that was there to, to hear what the request is, what the problem might be, to help empathize, maybe sympathize with the cause. Again, I, I see it as God putting all the right puzzle pieces in place. Um, and I love how the response it says that the king granted me what I asked. But notice ultimately where the praise goes to, the focus goes to. So while the king said yes, you know what Nehemiah knew? The reason he said yes was the good hand of my God was upon me. He knew that God was the one that worked it out. He knew that those four months of prayer, of weeping, of seeking God. Yo, and again, we so often want that quick, instantaneous response. But man, as we said earlier, that investment of prayer earlier led him to this point that as he sees things play out, he realized that it wasn't Nehemiah's skill. Wasn't Nehemiah's resources. But it was God who worked all of this out. And a great reminder to us, too, that we've said multiple times that the, the, the king's heart is in God's hand. The, the, scripture tells us that, that a king is like a water channeled by God, and he channels it to wherever he sees fit, wherever he chooses. Doesn't matter. All these kings that we've read about in Ezra and Nehemiah, none of these kings were believers, at least to the best of our knowledge. None of these kings were followers of God. They were all pagan kings. They all believed in a plethora of gods. But, but God used them to accomplish his will. Don't lose heart, folks. No matter, I don't know when you're going to watch. Some of us, like right now in the midst of all this, this chaos around us, be reminded that God is in control. Like, there's, there should be no fear right now in who will be our next president. Who will win the election? There should, in a believer's heart, there should be no fear because the, at the end of it all, God still controls that king. Like, let's just trust in him. And understand, all of the good, all of this comes from the Lord. Uh, and so, so we see like this really kind of exciting part here in, in Nehemiah, right? He's been praying for four months. Now he has the opportunity. Man, God guides and directs and, and, and delivers for him. And verse 9 says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, Real quick, now here's what's cool. Again, oftentimes we pray. I heard, I read it somewhere. I don't remember when. I read it somewhere that we pray for A. Right? And God often gives us A, B, and C. Right? There's no, like, Nehemiah had been praying that God would give him the opportunity to come before the king. He would guide and direct him. And the king would allow him to go back to Jerusalem. He gave him the two things he asked for, Right? to let him go, and then he would give them the letters and the financial resources to help rebuild it. And then also the king sends with him like a military escort. But he provides him even greater protection than a letter. Soldiers. Like, so it just, to me, it gets, it's a continual showing of God's goodness 
God's grace in this. And so he goes, but verse 10, notice it says this, but when Sanballat, um, the Hornite, Horonite, um, Hornite, um, Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. We're going to become more familiar with these characters. But in the midst of this, we begin to see when, when, when God's people begin to do God's work, it upsets the enemy. It angers the enemy. And he begins to stir up resistance. We saw it several times in Ezra. We're going to see attempts here in the book of Nehemiah. And as we get to this, as we see these characters identified, we have to just begin to see this underlying thing that God is doing a work. His, his people are following it. There's some excitement in the midst of it. And so the enemy is going to see what he can do to stop it. Verse 11 says, So I went to Jerusalem and, there was, and, and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and I saw a few men with me, or and I had a few men with me. I, um, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate um, of, to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down in its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Verse 14 says, Then I went to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under, my, under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were, who were to do the work. And so when we get to verse 11 through 16, we see that, that Nehemiah arrives. And, and really, right off the bat, like again, it, was a, it probably was a, a long, laborsome, tiresome journey. And so he, he arrives in Jerusalem. And we see at the beginning, like he takes like three days of rest. Like I, I really think it's important for us to realize the importance of rest. You know, so often we get so worked up, we get so fast-paced, we get so focused on tasks and things that we fail to take rest. And I think this is a good leadership principle. I think this is a good leadership principle in ministry. I think this is a good leadership principle in life. That if we don't take time to rest, then we are setting ourselves up for failure. The... I did the rest there from a physical standpoint, an emotional standpoint, even a spiritual standpoint is critically important. So Nehemiah takes these, these couple of days of rest, and then he goes out at night and he begins to inspect things, inspect the walls, inspect the city. And he does this kind of on his own, like he doesn't go and he doesn't tell anybody. Right? And I think, again, like this is kind of important. Right? He, he received news at the beginning of chapter one we see the report was given by his brother of of the walls being down the gates being burned and the city in shambles and so there were reports of that but here we see nehemiah 
himself wanted to go out and to verify the reports, to, to inspect, to get a real idea of what is generally going on. He did it at night where he couldn't be necessarily seen. It wasn't a matter of him trying to hide, but he wanted to get an honest, a real, a truthful assessment. He wanted to gather facts not just a bunch of personal opinions. If he would have gone in day, he would have been maybe grabbed by different people. And he would have, if he would have gone by day, he would have had a big group of people around him that maybe those the military protection. It would have been a, a more like a parade. And so people may have acted differently, or people may have grabbed him and tried to give him different stories or different perspectives or different things. But but what we see here, we have to understand here is that this is driven. What, what Nehemiah wants to accomplish is being driven by the Lord, right? He's broken in chapter four, but he spends four months in prayer. Those four months, as, as we said now, this is the third time, was an investment spiritually. In those four months, he's being grounded, he's being rooted in what God wants him to do. And so he wants to be very tethered to that idea. He doesn't want to be persuaded or changed or adjusted by what other people may want. He wants to do what God wants. And so he goes, kind of keeping this all to himself, gets um, a, a better, a fuller understanding of what's taking place. Verse 17 says, Then I said to them, so once he kind of gathers all the facts, he spent all this time in prayer, now he's going to go and he's going to challenge the people there. He says, Then I said to them, um, you see the trouble we are in. Again, notice as we go through this, notice how he says we. He doesn't say you're in. He doesn't say, y'all, I left Susa, I left my place of luxury, and I'm coming here to fix your mistakes, fix your problems. No, 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 this is we. See the trouble that we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer, suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us build, let, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Right, so he goes before the people. says, let's go, let's do this. And, and, and what I think part of that, I mean, it's, it's one thing for him to be able to get up there and give a motivational speech. But words can be motivating at times. I, I coach um, high school basketball. And before our games, we'll go in our locker room. And we have a beginning time where we talk about some X's and O's and strategies in the game. But man, right before we come out and right before we run out into the basketball court, right before the guys do their warm-ups and, and go before the fans, we have our moment of inspiration where I try to motivate those guys with words. So words can be motivating, but listen, he's not just trying to be the Winston Churchill of the day. Right? What he's doing here is he's not just trying to give them words of inspiration, but he points them to God. He points them and says, guys, listen, God is in this. God, God is what broke my heart, and God is the one who allowed me to leave the king, and God is the one who worked out how the king brought a lot of us all this timber. God is the one who has done this. Now, think through this. 
Those people have been there for a while. Right? And they, they, they could have easily come back with two other responses. Here, man, we see that they, 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 they take everything he says in and says, let's do this. Let's get up and let's go build this. But they could have easily said, you know what? We've kind of grown accustomed to this. Like we're used to, to, to this situation. We found a way to live in it. We found a way to function in it. It may not be exactly what we want, but we know it. We're used to it. They could have done that. You know what else they could have said? They could have said, hey, Nehemiah, we tried that before. If you don't remember this, go back and read Ezra chapter 4. Because they tried that. Back then, another group of characters showed up kind of mocked them, made fun of them, um, derailed them, and caused them to stop doing the rebuilding process. They could have said, man, Nehemiah, we've tried that before. It just didn't work. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. It's a waste of resources. Just Let's just give up. And they did. They jumped in. And they said, let's do this. And I love how, how this didn't become about Nehemiah. This became about God. It came about what God wanted to accomplish and what God wanted to do. And this is going to be much bigger, much greater than just Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an important figure. God is going to use him in a great and a mighty way. But in order for this task to be completed, it took them all. You know, I think of our church. I think of all these things that we've been talking about. We Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter. One of the things that we've been trying to challenge everybody is, is this. like If we want things to change, then we must be part of the change. If we want to see people come to know the Lord, we want to see society turn from evil to good, then we need to be engaged. We need to be going and sharing and telling. This is not one person's responsibility, one ministry's responsibility. Everyone who, who carries the, the title of Christian, everyone who has entered a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are called to do that. We are called to get engaged. God wants us to be builders. He doesn't want us just to sit and watch. He doesn't want us to just sit and get comfortable. He, he doesn't want us to just golf at, at every opportunity that we could do things. God wants us to be builders, not people who tear things down, but people who build things up. People who are building not just things, but people who are building the kingdom. That's what he wants. Verse 19 says, But then Sanballat the Hornite, um, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us, despised us, and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And so those two of those guys we identified earlier, but again, it's the same thing. And people are excited. We're going to do this great work for God. And the enemy decides to show back up. Tries to cause them to stumble. And these these, these 
men show up, jeer them, kind of make fun of them, mock them, question them, question Nehemiah, and like on whose authority are you doing this? And all of these things, similar to what happened in Ezra. Verse 20, we see Nehemiah's response. It says, Then I reply to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. We, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah doesn't debate with these men. He doesn't, at this point, doesn't negotiate with them. He doesn't compromise. Now he looks them square in the eye. He says, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And, his, and we, his servants, will arise and build. He just says, listen, God is in this. God is strengthening us. God is providing for us. God is calling us. And so we, as a people, are going to rise up and do what he wants us to do. And you can get out of here. You have no part in this. We're not listening to you. You're not going to influence, influence us. You're not going to impact us. We are following God. We are doing what he wants us to do. I love that tenacity of Nehemiah. We're going to study some of this more. But I think part of this reason why, part of the hang-up, part one of the great struggles that we're going to, be able, we're going to see is there are going to be some there in Jerusalem who are going to become compromisers. Right, so there are going to be some in there that are beginning to question and they're going to fall in line with these enemies. The church isn't much different today. We are called to be holy people, separate people, followers of Christ. My hope for us is that we don't become compromisers. It is time, it is beyond time that the church now rises up, that we become builders once again. Stop compromising. Keep believing. Start believing. Be faithful to Him. And I hope that this word from Nehemiah encourages you today. I hope that it strengthens you today. We, we see these tremendous markers of faith exhibited in Nehemiah that can be exhibited in us today. That faith of, of waiting, yet praying. That faith of, of going, of, of, being want, of wanting to be sent. That the faith of asking, and that faith of him going and challenging the people around him. Challenging those around him to stand up, to rise up, to build, and that faith to look the enemy in the eye and say, not now, get out. So that's my prayer for us. My prayer for you. I love you guys. I'll see you soon.